Well, welcome to this week's episode of the Decarb Connect podcast. My name's Alex Cameron. I'm the founder of Decarb Connect. And this week, I'm talking to someone who I'm sure the majority of our listeners will be very well aware of, uh, Lord Adair Turner, who chairs the Energy Transitions Commission. So welcome, Lord Turner. Thank you very much for joining me on this episode. Thank you. Let me just give um, a little bit of a rundown of your experience before we come into our discussion. And the, the focus that we've chosen for today is what has to happen in the 2020s, so really just in the next eight years, which seems terrifying in the context of climate, but what needs to happen in the 2020s for net zero to be achievable? And just to give a little context for this um, with your background, and of course for those people perhaps from overseas who may be less familiar with your work, I'll just give a bit of a flavour of of what you're involved in. So um, Lord Turner chairs the Energy Transitions Commission, which is a, a global coalition of uh, power, industrial companies, investors, NGOs, and a number of experts that are all working working out how to get achievable pathways in place that will limit global warming well below that magic two degrees. I know there's many people out there that will argue for 1.5 and another, but you know that that's the focus of the ETC uh, by 2040. I guess that's also important to note. And interestingly, and we can maybe address this when we talk a bit more, it's not just about how do we get there, it's how do we do it in a way that stimulates economic development and and social progress. And as a background, I mean, it's kind of fascinating some of the things you've been involved with. Um, I knew you, I I remember coming across you being quoted around the time of the financial crisis in the UK, um, because you chaired, was it you chaired the Financial Services Authority? played this key role in that post-crisis redesign of the banking system and regulations. So yeah, a very different kind of crisis, but crisis management nonetheless. And in addition to that, um, there are a number of high profile roles in public policy and industry. And just a few of them I'll mention, Director General of the CBI, Chairman of the UK Low Pay Commission, Chairman of the Pensions Commission, and of course, you were the first ever chairman of the Climate Change Committee. So that is quite a rundown. Um, but thank you very much for bringing your expertise to share with us today. And as a kickoff, you know, given the variety of roles and experience you've had, how, how did you come to engage with the Energy Transitions Commission? So how did you come into this, this space again? Well, as you've mentioned already, uh, I was very involved in climate change issues as the first chair of the UK Climate Change Committee from 2008 to 12. And for those who don't know that, that is the committee set up by Parliament to keep the government honest and to advise on how to reduce our emissions on path to 2050. So I'd I'd done that for four or five years. And so I was, uh, people knew that I was involved in uh, issues to do uh, with climate change and energy transition. There were a couple of years where I was away from climate change issues. These were 2013 to 15. When I'd finished my job at the Financial Services Authority, I decided to write a book on financial instability and monetary economics. And that took a couple of years to produce. But by 2015, uh, I was coming out of that and looking for a new challenge. And the Energy Transition Commission was being set up. It was wished into being. It was created 
uh, by a friend and colleague of mine called Jeremy Oppenheim, uh, who was also setting up a new uh, consulting company and an investment company entirely focused on this space called Systemic. He uh, had managed to create with some other key sort of anchor members, the Energy Transition uh, Commission, where there were probably about 15 major members at that time. This is autumn 2015 in the sort of run up to the Paris uh, Climate uh, COP21 uh, conference. And they came to me and said, would I be the first chair, actually the first co-chair, along with Ajay Mathur, uh, the then head of the Energy and Resources Institute uh, of uh, India. And so I became the co-chair uh, with, with Ajay. Ajay has now moved on to the International Solar Alliance, so we now only have uh, one chair. Um, but that was how I got involved. Uh, they asked me, and I guess they, they knew that I had been significantly involved in climate change issues as the CCC. In fact, I'd first of all really got engaged in them back at the Confederation of British Industry, where I think I and others said, look, we've got to start taking this issue seriously. And we began to produce the reports from the CBI saying uh, climate change is an issue with which business has to engage. So I became chair of the uh, climate, the Energy Transition Commission tail end of 2015, early 2016. Uh, we've been going five and a half, five and three quarters, almost six years now. And we have grown very significantly. We're now sort of 45, 50 members. We are continuing to grow. Uh, we began with a focus on Europe, but we're now attracting members in the US. We've got extensive activities in India and in China uh, and now in Japan. And again, we have evolved our point of view. You said earlier um, our focus was a, a, a below two degrees centigrade. We, we are also focused on 1.5. Um, though, let's be clear, there's no, there's no binary thing here. It's all probability distribution. So I would say that the, the target we are now focused on in the Energy Transition Commission is how do we have a profile of future emissions that gives us a 90% certainty of staying below two degrees centigrade and at least a 50-50 chance of 1.5 degrees centigrade. And that path requires us to get to something like net zero emissions across the global economy during the 2050s. We would say all rich developed economies should get there by 2050, all developing there by 2060. Uh, and it requires that we reduce our emissions by about 40% in the 2020s. And so uh, our focus is on what are the technologies, what are the investments, what is the supporting public policy, what is the role of the private sector, what is the role of financial institutions, what is the role of governments of heading us down the technologically possible path uh, which we have set out. And that that period of time from 2015 onwards, I mean, we, as, as Decarb Connect has only been formed since 2020, we, we've seen a shift within industry and corporates about how they've talked about it even in the last 18 months. So you must have seen quite an arc of, yeah. I don't know, different viewpoints, different actors getting involved. Well, I, I think that's a very interesting point. I think if you take the, the six years from, from Paris to Glasgow, COP21 to COP26. It's only five years in COP numbering terms because, of course, uh, Glasgow got uh, delayed for a year due to COVID. That five, six-year period has seen a very major change in what we believe is necessary to deal with climate change and what we believe is possible. So the climate science has 
developed to say, guys, you know, it's absolutely essential to limit below two degrees centigrade, but we really ought to be aiming for 1.5 because we now understand much more than before that every 0.1 above 1.5 or even above today's 1.1, 1.2 is going to cause very significant harm. So there's been a firming up on the target really has to be not just below uh, two degrees centigrade, but certainly below two degrees centigrade, well below two degrees centigrade, ideally 1.5. What has also occurred is an increasing confidence um, in business and in government that it is technologically possible to do that and that we can get to a net zero economy by 2050. And we have seen that in our work at the ETC. And I think we've played a role in that change of attitude. If you'd gone to steel companies across the world five years ago, or to the major steel associations, to anybody involved in the steel industry, or to governments you know, regulating the steel industry and said, what can the steel industry do by 2050? People would have been talking about, well, we can get emissions down 60% or maybe 80%. And there'd been a lot of talk about, well, this is an industry where it's so expensive to decarbonize that we're going to have to buy offsets from other sectors of the economy. Well, we are now in, in, in an environment where pretty much the whole of the serious steel industry across the world believes that it should get to net zero by 2050. And that should mean 90 to 95% of the reduction is within the steel production process in itself, with only the last five to 10% being some offset or removal uh, elsewhere in the economy. And that is a complete revolution. And we played our role in it with our Mission Possible report in autumn 2018, where we looked at all of the hard to abate sectors of the economy, steel, cement, chemicals, shipping, aviation, trucking, aluminium, and said, even what you used to think were hard to abate heavy sectors, we can get to net zero and we must get to net zero. And that must mean primarily net zero within these industries themselves by the application of technology. Now, that is now, broadly speaking, accepted. I mean, if you go to the shipping industry, there are big debates about how you get to net zero, but the fact that the target has to be net zero uh, is increasingly accepted. And that's been a revolution. The way I would sum it up is, over the last five years, an increasing acceptance across the world, and you see this in the outcome of the negotiated outcome, the formal outcome of COP26 in Glasgow, increasing acceptance that the target has to ideally be 1.5, and that, that means getting to net zero by 2050 and about 40% down by 2020, increasing acceptance of that and increasing acceptance across all sectors and countries that it's possible. And again, just two measures of that. Back in 2018, there were almost no countries which had committed to being net zero by 2050. Remember, the UK's target at that time was formally an 80% reduction. It was only in summer 2019 that the UK moved its target to net zero by 2050. We've gone from having almost no countries committed to net zero by mid-century to 70% of global GDP now being covered by some or other net zero uh, commitment. For developed countries, it's always 2050, and then China's 2060, India's 2070. I'd love to persuade China to bring forth that forward to 2050. 
India uh, to 2060, but we'll work on that in future. So huge movement over the last few years in country commitments to get to net zero and huge commitments. I haven't got the numbers to hand, but if you add up all the different companies and sectors which have been organized by the Race to Zero initiative, science-based targets initiative to make a commitments to net zero, and then the financial institutions organized, for instance, within the Glasgow GFANS uh, uh, initiative, what we have is huge amount of the global economy now saying we will get to net zero by mid-century. And as you suggest, Alex, that's completely new. We, we weren't anywhere near that. Uh, in 2015 or, or even in 2018. In industry, we have seen in the last 12 months or so, certainly in the last six months, the kind of roadmaps coming into place for steel, for, well, I think cement came in place before that, but for these key industries, I'm interested from your perspective, just can you paint a picture a bit of what, what does a decarbonized industrial base look like? You know, what, what would it be like to operate in, in that world? And and then we'll have a look at some of the, the, the top steps and, and primary challenges. There's so many we could pick on, but we'll pick out some of the highlights of those. Well, I think what's interesting is that in some sectors, I think there's an increasingly clear technological vision. I would say in one sector, which I'll come back to, there's still much more work to be done. So if you take, I mean, at one level, aluminium is relatively straightforward. You know, Aluminium is fundamentally an electrolysis process. And so once you get your electricity to be zero carbon, you have very significantly decarbonized aluminum. I mean, it's a relatively clean uh, technology at the moment. It will get cleaner once we get uh, zero carbon electricity. There are complicated things about uh, emissions uh, at earlier bits of the process, alumina refining from bauxite. There are things to do with the, the anodes getting away from graphite anodes. But the absolute core with aluminium is get to zero carbon electricity, and you will be getting closer to a zero carbon aluminium system. In steel, and this is a really interesting change, this occurred over three years, uh, three years ago, if you'd asked me what will be the predominant route to steel decarbonization, I would have said there will certainly be a big role for carbon capture and storage attached at the back end of blast furnaces, uh, continuing to use uh, coking coal. And I'd have said there may also be, over time, the development of hydrogen routes, hydrogen uh, direct reduction routes. I think in only three years, the thinking has shifted quite dramatically. We produced uh, through what's called the Mission Possible Partnership, which is a sort of sister daughter organization of the ETC, about two months ago, uh, a thing called the Net Zero Steel Initiative Report, produced by uh, uh, you know, most of the European uh, steel industry. And in that report, we set out scenarios for how the steel industry across the world would go from here to a zero carbon uh, economy by 2050 with a, it, it has behind it a detailed database of all the steel plants in the world and when they're next going to come up for major reinvestments and what are the technologies that should occur and what is interesting about that is that is now predicting that by 2050 coking coal demand could fall 85 or 90%. With the role of CCS attached to coking coal being a really quite minor part of the story. And instead, a set of technologies 
which are either methane-based or hydrogen-based, many of which indeed within that period would transition from being initially methane-based and then becoming hydrogen-based over, uh, over time. Because of course, when you use direct reduction using methane, you're not actually using methane as the reduction agent. You're first of all generating a syngas, which is a, 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 a carbon monoxide, CO uh, and hydrogen mix. And because those are reduction agents. And once you've got that, you can then change the balance over time. So it starts off being a, a syngas mix and it ends up as pure hydrogen. But the crucial point is from a point three years ago where really people were thinking about hydrogen as well, there'll be early experiments in the 2020s, and, but maybe this will become a large scale deployment in the 2030s and 40s. It has roared forward to be something which people are thinking about deploying in the 2020s and certainly on a massive scale in the 2030s. So I think on steel, we are at the point where there is quite a rich understanding. There's still a hell of a lot of work for each individual steel company to work out about its precise existing assets, how it moves, how it's going to get the finance. Those are complicated things in public policy. This steel will initially be more expensive to produce. So you've either got to persuade a customer to prior green premium, or you've got to have a carbon price. And if you've got a carbon price in one jurisdiction, but not another, you'll need a border carbon adjustment. There are a set of complexities on this path, but the fact that there's a technological vision, that's fairly clear. On cement, again, I think here, I still do believe that carbon capture and storage will almost certainly play a major role. And that is still the assumption of the roadmap set out by the uh, Global Cement and Concrete Association back in October, uh, because the very process of starting with calcium carbonate and then calcining it and producing a, 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 a calcium oxide is bound to produce CO2. Um, so there, there hasn't been such a revolution in our thinking. Maybe there will be. Maybe some of the new cement chemistries will be there. But uh, even if there aren't, we, we sort of have a vision of the core of what needs to be done there. I think the bit which I'm less sure of is in bits of the chemical sector. And if you drive, derive the chemical sector into two, there's, a, there's an area which is ammonia and fertilizers. I think we have a vision there that we, you essentially decarbonize the hydrogen production either by steam methane reforming plus carbon capture and storage, but increasingly we think green hydrogen will dominate that. So that bit of what goes on in the chemicals process, the whole Harbour Bosch, you know, we know what will occur. I think where it's more complicated, and we are still working on the myriad options, but we'll be producing work on pathways this year, is the whole of the petrochemical complex and the plastics complex. And what is the balance between recycling or using a bioresource as your your, where you get your carbon molecule from fossil fuels, or is it applying carbon capture and storage? Uh, and also accepting that the point about that area of chemicals is it's not one or two easily understandable processes. You've got, you've got incredibly complicated systems with lots of handovers of byproducts from one process to another. I think we are still at a somewhat earlier days of getting a consensus or a possibilities of what is the pathway there, but that's a key focus of our work over this year. So you've, you've articulated there already some of, some of the key steps around 
different routes involving hydrogen, some different perspectives on carbon capture. Is there, like, when you think of key steps to that need to be taken, and we, if we put technology to one side, what do you see as some of the key organizational or softer side of this? Maybe that's not the right description. Well, one of the first things to say is that net zero targets are very, very important. I mean, people sometimes say, oh, God, you know, you've made a net zero target by 2050. It's 30 years away. You know, it doesn't make any difference. It, what we have observed is it makes a huge difference. That once a company or a sector through its sectoral organization says, we're aiming for net zero by 2050. Uh, and once it starts saying, and we better start describing what we can do in the intermediate years, whether we're getting to zero on a convex curve, a linear line, or a convex curve, all of that generates that process that everybody in business is familiar with, which is what gets measured gets managed. You know, once you've made that commitment uh, and you've said to your, your strategic team, okay, work out how we're gonna get there, things begin to happen. You begin to explore technologies which you would not have explored if you'd said, I'm doing net zero by 2080, or if I'm doing 80% by 2050. So these net zero targets, and then people trying to describe the pathway from here to net zero has really unleashed a huge amount of work, um, which has then forced the development of technologies. And so that's almost a sort of, that's a, a soft, I mean, it's not, it's not soft, it's, it's quite crunchy in a way, but it's, it's not the technology, it's the, <coughs> it's the process uh, by which we, we, we get there. And it's very important that in that process, it's occurring simultaneously in the companies and the countries. It's companies making voluntary commitments, uh, countries then saying, we have a zero commitment. And then even the companies, which were the laggards saying, well, if the country's committed, we're going to have to get there in any case. And you get this snowball effect, and then you get work which focuses on the technology. So that's important. I think the other thing which is really important is cross-sectoral infrastructure enabling. And what I mean by that is this. When you try to work out how you decarbonize, let's move away from heavy industry to, to transport, to shipping. There is a vision that that may well be either by methanol or I would say even more likely by ammonia. Uh, ammonia, which will be made from hydrogen, probably primarily from green hydrogen. And there's an investment need to do all that. What is interesting in the shipping industry, if, if you add up all the investment billions of dollars required, only a very small bit is the new engines and the new ships. And by far the biggest bit is in the hydrogen production facilities, but an even bigger bit is in the zero carbon electricity system. And that is also true in steel. What you have to invest in new steel mills, which do some form of uh, you know, new uh, melt technology or a, a DRI technology, the actual steel mill investment is relatively small compared with what somebody has to invest in zero carbon electricity in order to produce the volumes of zero carbon hydrogen which would be involved in that situation. And so one of the things which is really important is to look sector by sector, but then to add it all up and say, when you add it all up, 
This means that hydrogen production is going to have to go from 100 million tons to 500 million tons. And this means that the amount of electricity which will need to go into that uh, will, uh, first of all, most of that 100 million tons is not being made with electricity at the moment. It's being made by steam methane reforming. If there's 500 million tons of a, uh, a, a, a hydrogen, and if all of that was being produced in a green fashion, you're going to have to have somewhere around 20,000 terawatt hours of electricity devoted to do it. So one of the important things is to keep coming back to the fact that huge development of zero carbon electricity is a crucial cross-sector enabler of everything that individual sectors can do. They can only move ahead if coming onto a production are massively bigger amounts of zero carbon hydrogen, for instance, in some cases than they are at the moment, which is why you have to see this sector by sector, but you have to see the total energy system challenge as well. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, certainly in the UK, we hear a lot from the heavy industries about the, the, the challenge of decarbonizing when the cost of electricity is already so high. And presumably, you know, if we're moving to ever cleaner, ever greener forms of electricity, that's not, the implication is that's no cheaper, is it? Well, it may be eventually, it may be eventually. And, but along the way, unless we really have national strategies to drive the development of electricity fast enough to support all the new things that we're devoting it to, then the price will go up, right? If in 2030 in the UK, we are getting serious numbers of passenger cars electrified. And if people are switching over the um, uh, steel mills to use hydrogen direct reduction, and if we're building big green ammonia plants to put into to refuel ships, and if we have not by then built much more electricity capacity, well, then the price will go up because you'll have higher demand against a fixed supply. So it's incredibly important that the development of the zero carbon electricity system occurs, you know, in line with and ideally in advance of this growth of demand. If we let the growth of demand go and then turn around and say, where's the green electricity to drive this? Um, you will have you will have real volatility and, and sudden spikes of prices on the route. The eventual point, we think by 2050, is that actually by then we probably will enjoy electricity cheaper than today because the technologies are so powerful. But we've got to make sure that there aren't barriers uh, which slow that progress and produce spikes of uh, energy and electricity prices along the way. Okay, well, that kind of partly answers one of the questions I have, which is what, what does government still own? Because there does seem to be a shift with this COP, I think, to a lot more conversation, a lot more realization, a lot more energy from industry and investors that yep. what their role is, but still a key role for government, obviously in supporting innovation, but, but clearly there in that uh, zero carbon electricity infrastructure. But for industry, if we flip it into, we talked about roadmaps, we've talked about key steps, what is it that they must own and what do they need to show within the next eight years? Like, what are you really saying to them? Look, it's great, we can put this stuff in place. We can look at this money. We can look at what the government does but you have to self-actualize what? What is it we need to show? Yeah, well, look, I mean, it gets very specific by sector, but what we need is all the major companies in the steel sector, the cement sector, 
shipping, chemicals, to have a clear vision of net zero by 2050 and a clear vision of we've got to get significant reductions in the 2020s. And then we need them in their own business to be working out how they're going to make that transition. <clears throat> and the precise pace will vary. It will vary according to the, the age of your existing physical assets and the particular configuration of your physical assets. But you need a vision of how you're going to go from A to B. You've got to have a vision of when do you do the first pilot plants of a new technology? When do you do first full commercial scale? When do you drive that technology through the whole uh, of your uh, asset base? That is important. I think it is also very important for industry to engage in the public policy debate and to engage in a, a responsible fashion. And I think here's the fundamental challenge. Making zero carbon cement will be more expensive. Uh, I think it's possible that for steel, it eventually may be no expensive. I think it'll be more expensive en route, but it may come down. But in any sector where what you're doing is taking an existing progress process and adding CCS, then you sort of know by a piece of mathematic, you know, axiomatic logic, that it's going to be more expensive. You know, A plus B is greater than A if A and B are two positive numbers. So adding carbon capture and storage to cement means more expensive cement. So you've got to have the cement industry saying, what are we going to do about that? They should be the guys saying, we want a level playing field between all of us. We want a carbon price because that's the only way that we, the responsible uh, people who want to get to get zero, debt to net zero can be on a level playing field with they're not, with people who are being uh, slow. Now, it's also completely legitimate for them to say, but if we're going to have that in Europe, we need some sort of CBAM projection, border carbon adjustment uh, 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 protection against imports from Russia or you know, Morocco or, or Turkey or contiguous places that could bring in cement. But it's really crucial that there is a sort of a really effective relationship between business and individual companies in these sectors committing to the technologies, but not saying, well, I'm only going to do them when they're equally cost effective, because in some cases they will never be equally cost effective. We are going to have to accept a higher price of cement in our business than we in the economy than we've had before. And we need the policy instruments that supports that. So one of the things you need is you need um, uh, you need industry associations to be calling for tax. And that's that's not something that comes naturally to industry associations. But, you know, if we're to have well designed carbon taxes with appropriate protections, industry associations have got to be saying, here's what you, the public policy, need to do to help us drive this, this uh, transition forward. We've sort of touched a bit on, on there of what we might need from policy. Just a kind of a headline from you on, on capital markets. What do, you, what do we need to see from there? And then, then what I want to really get into is I know you have some kind of interesting ideas around other mechanisms that could drive the growth of green materials, but let's, let's just a, a, a kind of a, a brief word on the capital market. The good news is that through the, the, the Glasgow Financial and Asset Net Zero commitment, GFANS, uh, we, we have a huge number of banks and asset managers committing that they will 
act in ways which are compatible with getting to net zero. Now, it's true to say that a lot of them, having made that commitment, and I say, oh, what the hell does that mean? How do I do it? Because if it's difficult enough for an individual steel company or cement company or shipping company to say, okay, I have to go from here to net zero, but what is, an, what is a good path for me to do it? That's complicated enough for one company. If you are a financial institution and you lend to tens of thousands of companies, in order to be able to say what I am doing is compatible with net zero, you have to be able to think about, am I only investing in or lending money to companies, each of which is on a sensible path to net zero, but there are tens of thousands of them. So it's just a much more complicated thing to, to operationalize. But the good news is, with those commitments there, there's now a huge amount of work going on through the GFAN secretariat, and we're engaged in it as well, of helping uh, financial institutions think through what is good. And I think what this will then drive is you will find that in the, 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 the corporate lending departments of major banks or the asset managers uh, that could be investing in industry, uh, the bits which are thinking about the steel industry will, I think, be increasingly saying to the steel companies, tell me what your plan is. Tell me what the profile is. And comparing that with sort of benchmarks of what is good sector by sector and saying, you know, what you're doing is not good enough. And if it's not good enough, we can't fund you. But if it is good enough, we will fund you, even if you are quite carbon intensive at the moment. Because, of course, you can't magically suddenly go from being a carbon intensive industry to a, a, an uncarbon intensive industry. And therefore, it's very important that it's very important that we have banks and asset managers funding some of our most carbon intensive sectors, of our economy. I mean, one of the worst things that you can do in finance is to do. I, I did once see it about five years ago. I saw a charity looking at which companies it should invest in. And it had it had worked out what their emissions per unit of revenue was. Well, of course, that said, I'm not going to invest in steel companies and I'm going to invest in you know law firms. But you know, you have to invest in steel companies. Indeed, the most ludicrous result of that was they decided they weren't going to invest in a bus company because it had quite a lot of emissions. They hadn't quite realized that bus companies, you know, <laughs> help take people away from cars. So you've got to have an intelligent engagement in this, which gets way beyond, you know, what is the emissions per revenue. And sector by sector is working out what is good and really committing to not be willing to finance the companies which are laggards and not getting ahead with this transition, but being willing positively to support the ones which are clearly setting out a transition path uh, on the route to net zero. Okay, a slight, a slight uh, gear change. So we're, we're gonna kind of go back to, you were talking briefly before about the premium around green materials. And uh, when we were preparing for the recording, you mentioning a couple of really interesting ideas around the types of mechanisms that could be put in place to drive the growth of green materials. I mean, there is some work I know going on with Unidal looking at how they get governments to sign up, but that's a bigger lever. What, what other levers are there, do you think? Because I really think that that green materials argument is that's the main, main blocker that many of these companies need to see in order to act now. Well, look, if either initially or in some cases even in the long term, 
green steel is going to be more expensive than high emission steel. And if cement, probably even the long term, is going to be more expensive. We've got to bridge that gap to create a competitive level playing field between the people who are decarbonizing and the, uh, and the laggards. And the, there are really three different devices that you can do there. You can use carbon prices and, and carbon prices is a very good lever and I certainly think we should try and head towards that. You can use regulation. You can simply say, you know, over time, we're not going to allow uh, you know, people to uh, uh, produce certain, you know, end products which have more than this percentage of carbon intensity. Or you can try to organize voluntary commitments of purchasers of these materials, which drive the initial phrase. And you are seeing this emerging now, and it can be very important in the early stages of the transition. So in shipping, we are seeing commitments from people like Ikea and Walmart, uh, you know, and, and Amazon, people who are big buyers of shifting goods around the world to be willing to say, we are willing to pay a higher rate for our freight if you, the shipper, are doing things which are decarbonizing it. And in that case, they can be very confident that even if they pay a higher rate, the impact of that on the end product price is usually very small. Now, it varies sector by sector. Let's take steel. Within steel, the two biggest uses by far are automotive and construction. So what, what is trying to achieve here is get major automotive companies to say, we are going to place orders for green steel even if we have to pay a premium, a, a, a non-trivial premium to do that. But that will enable us to turn around to our end consumer and say, when you buy this, you know, brand X car or brand Y car, you are buying a car made out of green steel. And the economics of this will probably work because, you know, if a, um, a ton of steel made in a green fashion is going to cost $500 a ton, not $400 a ton, um, you know, so $100 a ton premium. And if, let's say, you've got a car which weighs, you know, a ton and a half of, of steel, that's going to add $150, 120 quid to the cost of a car. You know, it's, it's sufficiently small that you can imagine that that would be offset in consumer behavior by the fact that when I pay 20,120 rather than 20,000, I'm buying a green steel made car. So what is going on is a lot of exploration across many industries of can we organize these early buyers of a green steel, green cement. Now, when you get to, of course, cement, the crucial issue is the construction industry. And of course, here, <coughs> there is also a crucial role for public procurement because a significant amount of construction is affected in one way or other, either directly or indirectly by public procurement mechanisms. So can we get countries, companies, a, 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 you know, governments to commit to only purchase, you know, concrete made out of a green cement? Or can we get property developers to do that? And can we get banks and asset managers? One of the points, going back to your point about the capital markets, I found talking to banks when they think about what should be their net zero strategy? They naturally gravitate to, to when should I stop financing any coal? 
Should I stop financing oil and gas? What do I do with ships? What do I do with steel, etc.? Because they find it easy to think about that. When you point out to a major bank that almost certainly 60 to 70% on average of their loan portfolio is essentially funding real estate, uh, property development, residential mortgages, um, uh, house builders, hotel companies, etc. Um, what is your strategy as a banker if you are funding a property developer to say, I want you to be specifying green cement is something which I would like to encourage more of the financial system to think about, because I've found that the huge importance of buildings, because the point about buildings is buildings have a capital, have a, a, a carbon footprint, both in the building of them, the steel and cement and concrete that goes into them, and in the operation, how energy efficient was the design of that building. And we've got to try and get levers through into that industry. It's a difficult industry to get levers into. And here's, here's the challenge. If you talk about automotive steel, what you're typically dealing with is a relatively straightforward contractual relationship between a very large automotive company buying huge amounts of steel from a very large steel company. When you get to the construction industry, we have these layers and layers of contractors and, and subcontractors that make it more difficult to get you know, real uh, impetus. But we, we need a strong focus on that. And we need to explore all these potential ways of using the customer. And usually what we're talking about here is the corporate customer, not the individual customer, to place pressure on businesses, their suppliers to do the right thing, but also to be willing to play a, a, a somewhat of a green premium to help uh, their suppliers decarbonize. Okay, so so let's come. Can we come back to the the kind of the top line theme again, which was how do we make this real in the next decade, in the next eight years? If just as a, a kind of a way to to wrap up on all these uh, different strands of thoughts, like what? How will we know? How will you know in twenty twenty five or in twenty thirty if if there is real action to match both commitments and how people talk about it and the roadmaps and heaven knows what else, what, what's going to signify to you, oh, this is sticking? Well, I think, you know, by 2030, it will be very obvious because, you know, we have to try to get steel industry emissions down 30%, 35% by 2030. We have to try to get probably cement and concrete down 15 or 20%, you know, sector by sector, we can define what is a reasonable expectation of where we could get to under forceful policy. And in 2030, we'll know whether we're there or not. I think the more difficult question you've posed is what would you do in 2025? Because inevitably by 2025, there'll be less in the actual emission numbers. So what you'll be looking for is, can I see the new technologies already coming in in significant numbers of commercial operation plants moving beyond pilot plants in, in steel direct reduction to commercial operation plants can i see you know major steel producers major cement producers with clearly declared plans not just of what the objective is but what is going to happen in plant a 
in 2028? You know, when is that blast furnace, you know, going to close down? When is that cement plant going to have carbon capture and storage attached to it? So I think by 2025, we will want to see uh, lots of progress on early demonstration plants, early commercial plants. Uh, uh, we will want, but we will also want to see really flowing through in big numbers things where you can say, you know, this steel company, this cement company, this chemicals company can take me to big plant X and tell me, look, you know, we're beginning work on the capital procurement and the, the you know, the groundworks and whatever you have to do. And by 2028, you know, this thing is going to be producing in a different fashion. So that, that's what you, you know, by 2025, it's got to be way beyond you know, broad overall pathways to really asset by asset, having a feeling of what is going to move by when in the late 2020s and then through into the 2030s. Great. Well, Lord Turner, thank you so much. I mean, real privilege to be able to talk with you about this. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We're also very lucky to have you at our uh, DCOG Connect event in January. So we'll see you there as well. But again, thank you for taking some time. Really, uh, this is for those listening, you'll know you'll be listening to this in the week just running up to New Year. So it's a great kickoff to thinking of how 2022 can be another very big step forward. So thank you. Thank you. It's been nice joining you for the, this discussion and I look forward to your event in January. Thank you very much. Many thanks for listening to the Decarb Connect podcast. We work with clients across the industrial sectors, specifically those who are tasked with decarbonizing the most energy intensive products and materials that we use every day. If you have an interest in uh, learning more about either our members network, our reports or our event series, do get in touch with us at decarbconnect.com. Or if you'd like to take part in the podcast, email me, alex at ac at decarbconnect.com. Thanks for listening.